running away. Pretty busy day. Pretty busy couple of days, actually. I actually got a deal done last night on the buy side, so that was that was a little wild. Oh, congrats. You won the lottery. Yeah, seriously. Um, no, it's been busy, too. Actually, I got one done on the weekend, too. A pretty big one, so I'm pretty busy. Nice. Nice congratulations! Yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy. I actually I saw something transact off market recently, which was pretty wild as well. And just yeah, I mean, really, really focusing obviously on the on the listing side right now, just trying to get product on the market. Um, I know. Kind of, I've never. This is crazy. I know. I'm kind of pushing out of, out of concern almost too a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I just put one up. Um, I I I felt I feel like we market priced it, but I, I still think it might go over. And it's a tiny little. It's actually a developer exiting, um, you know, a, a little major arterial that he built or that he bought to start a land assembly. And um, it just, you know, it's like to him the property is worth more by selling to the marginal buyer now than than it's worth to him to develop it and buy the one next door. Uh, it's just crazy where, that we've reached that point in the market from my perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just gonna uh, I'm just gonna add in the speakers and co-hosts and all that. Um, yeah, so I guess we want to chat today about policy. I thought I think it's really interesting, um, just given what happened yesterday with the, um, you know, with the the CPC shakeup, and then also, um, you know, what happened today or with that discussion i i don't know i don't know how serious that comment was you know from the um ospi i guess he's the president um but about uh oh the deputy the, the, yeah, peter rotledge yeah so d- did you listen to the podcast like it kind of it kind of felt like it was uh it was a, it was more casual than it was made out to be in the article but i mean the yeah. comment was made regardless right and 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 i'm interested to see because you know Last time we heard commentary like that from Ospi, it, it did lead to some sort of policy, and and I think you know there was speculation that they'd be the ones to, to do some sort of regulation um, to try and cool the market, and they're probably the ones in, in, in a position of power to do so, right? <laughs> well, yeah, because you know I, I, the banks are probably begging them to do something, right? Right? They're not going to regulate themselves out of fear of like losing out on on market share. Right. But um, I think Routledge comment was sort of like off the cuff, where he's saying some of these areas like uh, Ben's done a great job of pointing it out, like Tilsonburg and that have been like 50, 60 percent run up in pricing that, you know, that, yeah, they could contract an extra 20, 10 to 20 percent. And it's not far fetched at all for anyone to think that. Right. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's kind of embedded in the in the price growth that we're seeing. Right. Like, you you know, you. When you see run-ups of 10, 20 percent, like I would say, probably some of the the, the buyers who are going to get burned might already exist in the market. You know, like some of these prices that I've seen, some of these these outliers where they're like there's comps that haven't been met still, right? Um, they better hope so they have closing dates and those uh, appraisals come in because I don't know. What, yeah, you know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, so that to me kind of does feel like it, it does. It feels a lot like uh, 2017 in in the GTA That's with. Nice. You know, with the the run up to the non resident speculation tax, where you know, even I, I think if you analyze the data the week before the non resident speculation tax, there was a huge flood of supply. Um, oh yeah, happened I would, uh, about a week or two before, right? Like, pro- I think we probably would have seen the market 
plateau regardless, and the tax was just the final nail in the coffin there. I really feel that way. But I but I, I felt it. Like, I, I refinanced all mine and my parents' properties, you know, just because I felt I knew something in my gut that I was going to do it was going to happen. I did it in January of that year, of 2017. But I was pushing property out. Like, I was like, get out now, get out now. And, you know, thank God, by the skin of our teeth, most of our clients, we uh, – we, we sold before then we offloaded. Right. Did you feel like at that time there, there was potential for, um, for some sort of regulatory change, like, yes. uh, the NRST to come into place? Like, yeah, I, 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 I felt, I felt that for sure. Like in January of that year, I took all my properties. I took my parents' properties and I refinanced them to, to say, Hey, look, we're going to max out all the equity. We can't add to this thing. Cause I think price, something's going to come. That's going to affect the equity of them. And, uh, you know, it, it paid off, but I still have that feeling now too. Like, uh, I, th- I yeah. think before my gut is still before the end by the summer, we're going to see something. And I think it's going to be on OSFI because I go back to it. The, the, the rate thing is, is like, we're going to see what two more, two more meetings before then March. And uh, yes, yeah, we'll see March 1st and like, I don't know, late April, I think it is. Okay, yeah. April. Yeah, so I, I'm interested to see because I, I I think that like I don't think that two rate hikes is going to take the steam out of the market at this point based on what I'm seeing. I think it's going to take more than that. So I think it's going to you know it could be a combination right of, of a couple of hikes and and some regulations. Like we've heard nothing. Like it's been crickets from the housing minister. I mean they're really just basically putting on a a roadshow now with. Um, you know saying how much stuff they're doing, and but then they're all conversations and studies and whatever. It's like you know. Uh, there's no, there's no, there's no real indication of what direction they're heading on, on how, what policy we're going to see first. Um, I, it wouldn't surprise me if the first policy was increasing the CMHC cutoff to 1.25 million. Oh my god. Um, anyway, let's maybe we'll go through um, this list uh, slowly but surely. I'll just, I'll, I'm going I'm to go through the list for everybody listening of, of the, the topics that we're going to talk about. Um, and then we'll go, I want to discuss primarily the likelihood of, of seeing these policies and then the, how they would execute it. Um, and then also what, what we potentially think it would happen if it would have a positive or negative effect on the market. And then also, um, you know, the, the, I guess what would happen to price as a result um, of that. So number one is an anti-flipping tax on residential properties. Um, so properties holding or creating a holding period of a minimum of 12 months, uh, which you know, kind of exists, you know, or the, so the framework's there um, with the, with the primary residence. Um, it's just self-directed with accounting reporting um, Two, a temporary ban on foreign buyers, a, a non-recreational residential property. Three, reviewing down payment requirements for investment properties, which I do think if we're going to see an off-sea solution, that would be it. Um, four, ban on blind bidding. Um, interesting one to talk about the execution of. Five, increasing the CMHC cutoff for high-ratio mortgages to $1.25 million. Uh, six is just other random things, which I would group in that off-sea conversation today. Um, the CMHC study, Gen Squeeze study about the wealth tax, national property tax. Um, Bank of Canada now allegedly studying the optics of talking about whether or not there's a, a real estate bubble. Um, so these are the things I, I want to talk about. Uh, I think that's probably enough for us to have a, a, a pretty lengthy conversation. Um, so 
Yeah, why don't we why don't we um, just get started, uh, Peter? I'll, I'll have you start, and then we'll maybe have Nat, Nazma and, uh, and Susan um, jump in. And if anybody else wants to jump in, um, feel free to just uh, request as a speaker. Um, and if you have any questions as well, but um, if you want to maybe just give me a give me an indication of what you think is going to be the most likely policy out of that list, and and sort of where you see the market going in the next little bit, and then we'll have everybody sort of follow because I, I do think we have a really diverse uh, spectrum of, of perspectives here. So Peter, go ahead. Yeah, um, if you're asking which one do I think is the most likely, I think it's going to be uh, minimum down payments on investment properties. Right. And you think that, and so would that, that would be off seaside, I guess. And they yeah. would like, I guess the question becomes, how do you, like, where, where do you draw the line of what, be, what's an investment property and how do you, how do you determine or decide where you're going to start in, in, you know, enforcing that rule? Yeah, that would be difficult. I guess it would just come down to land titles and saying like, I, anything non-principal residence is just, you increase the, the minimum down payments from like 20 to let's say 30 percent and i think that would definitely take steam out of the market for sure yeah yeah i would agree i i think i would agree with that um i don't know if i agree that it's most most likely but i I do think it would definitely take some steam out of the market we've seen what a uh reduction in buying power looks like in um you know in the gta um with the non-resident speculation tax and i think that that was you know it was almost overnight that that blow off and then it also shook consumer sentiment to create almost like a two-year trough, I would say, um, or a year, year and a bit trough. Um, Nazma or Susan, do you either of you guys want to chime in on what you think is the most likely of the of these potential policies that to happen over the next year or so? Susan, go ahead. Okay, I was going to let the the prettier girl go first, but okay. So, um, you know what? I I honestly feel like we've entered like some sort of like fashion like are we talking about Toronto or some sort of fascist country because I just feel like you know like this this thing of like you know principal residence tax like I mean I equate that to like probate tax I think it's utter nonsense like I just feel like how do you tax someone on you know something that they've you know essentially like you know paid off their whole life and it was sort of like guaranteed to be their um can't tonight but yeah they're nest egg i was just gonna say that and you're robbing them of that like similar to probate tax which is like like i said aforementioned it's utter nonsense um and then the the issue of blind bidding i mean that just robs you of i mean that's that's the core of real estate isn't it like why don't we just remove everything while we're at it like i just i feel like you know i i don't know like i don't know what to say (laughs) i think the blind bid one's interesting because it you know, we have a an indication of what it looks like in in Australia, and it hasn't it hasn't done anything. Like it doesn't reduce prices. If anything, it maybe it shaves off the odd one where there's a you know two hundred thousand dollar gap in priority. You know, like a ten or twenty percent gap in absolutely. In, in the, so in what, the, okay, so essentially, what would be the alternative then if we remove blind bidding? I mean, like the, what, the, would it be an auction type? Yeah, it credit? would be an open auction process, and it it, it 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 wouldn't do anything in my opinion to curb. It would eliminate. It would help out all those shitty agents that can't do a simple comparative analysis and overshoot on prices. And we've seen it. Like I've seen it where the guy, one guy is doesn't know what the hell he's doing. He's a hundred grand more, and I'm like, okay, you're going to give me this. Well, you better have more than twenty percent to put down because it's not going to raise. But I think it's going to make on the buying side the client experience better. 
right? It's going to be I, uh, from that perspective. I don't think it'll do anything for prices, but on the buying side, it'll. But to some, but I mean, okay, I'm, not on the buying wrong, side, I'm just saying it's also a disservice to the seller, though. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, it, could, it doesn't have to be a disservice to the seller. I, I, it just I, it just infringes on their privacy. Okay, well. Because because you know like realistically they, they it it likely is going to continue to escalate the price right the the challenge becomes you know it it to me I think the hidden piece that that a lot of people don't realize is that you're taking away one of the primary functions of a realtor which is to price properties correctly right and you're handing that off to the market which a lot of agents are doing right now anyway they're they're pricing a property too low and making the market price it for them if you if you allow that to happen then you start to see an attack on the fee structure of realtors, which I would say you're already seeing anyway. You can go and find a 1% agent or a kickback agent all day long. But you start, you know, if you start eliminating the job of a realtor, then you start creating uh, a declining fee environment, which ultimately could create an advantage for the consumer. Um, But that, that to me is the part that isn't necessarily discussed a lot. You know what I think would be interesting? Um, you know, the whole blind bidding or open auction or whatever it is, I agree that I don't think it will help prices um, because someone who's willing to pay 200K, whatever, or 400 more, they will still do that. They will do whatever it takes. They'll keep bidding until they get to that price in their max, right? But like you said, I think it, it will just kind of give a better feeling to even losing buyers because now they don't have a bitter taste in their, their mouth. Now they know what's happening. They have like it's transparent or they feel like it's transparent. Um, and also, I mean, what about fake bidders? There, there's, you know, there's shady things happening everywhere. What if, what about some agent getting his friend right. to do fake bids, bid, 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 it bid, bring it really. on Come on, it like happens. there's always, well, yeah, there, there obviously, you go. There would obviously would have to be some sort of transparency, but um, you know, to your point, like, well, so back in the day, Toy Factory was actually auctioned. Um, Lanterra did that like for the very first time with that project. I don't know if anyone else remembers that uh, Big Ben there. Um, so um, I was involved in that capacity, and it was pretty interesting. Like they auctioned off the re- like their remaining inventory, and I think they did okay. But I mean, and then the other thing, of course, is that um, oh my god, why why is this slipping my mind? Um, Steinfeld, what's her first name? Sorry, Katie. Katie, yeah. Um, Katie has that, you know, she started that website way back in the day, like the auction site. And I'm not sure how much that flourished, but um, it seemed to be, you know, a space that was like different. And I, I yeah, but it's they're not, doing pretty well. Like, with it. Like, they've implemented the, comp- the concept well, it yeah. appears, right? So actually, yeah, I mean, she, I, I she did have a happy to hear to chat about it. Yeah, you know she did I, have a you know what I do think would be, you know, in theory, it might make sense. Like, I agree, Dan, with the fact that I like I hate the fact that, you know, we're listing ridiculously low. We're um, kind of hurting buyers feelings because they're they're getting, uh, you know, their, their feelings are getting uh, hurt because they go in and they, they think, oh, my God, it's listed at one three. I could probably get it for one four. I have a chance. And then it sells for like two million and they're shattered. Right. And it just and it doesn't make sense. And they're discouraged and they're angry. They're frustrated. So I just I I really wish that we can stop listing so low and just have like this unlimited, um, you know, ceiling to to prices on houses. And I wish that we could just say, you know what, instead of listing low, why don't we list high where, you know, if we listed this house at two million, let's say, um, 
all those people who could afford the one three, one four, they're not even going to bother. They're not even going to get the, get their you know um, dreams shattered. <laughs> they're just going to not even go see it. And then you just wait for an offer to come. I know what the problem with this is. There's two problems. One is you in this kind of market where you can't really put a price on what a buyer is willing to pay. You're you're you are putting the ceiling, and so you are kind of doing a disservice to the seller because you're kind of you know, um, putting a max on that price. Okay. Whereas maybe someone else is, but on the flip side, when you let the market speak, maybe you get two people or three people that on day one, and then you can still let the market speak because one person might say, Hey, I want it more. And I want to do give, you know, 2.1 on that. Right. On the flip side, what I like, you know, uh, about that as well is that, Oh, sorry. What I don't like as well. The, the second thing is that it's going to also feel unfair because in this kind of market, these houses are still going to sell within one day, zero days. Like as soon as it hits the market, offers any time, you can be sure that it will probably, if they're priced right, they'll sell on that day. And that will also feel very unfair to buyers. So you can't win. You can't win in this, like in this kind of market, there's no solution. It's just discouraging. That's Even and that, as an agent, you know. I think that that's the biggest challenge too. Like, and, and you, you know, you you finish that off really well, where you can't you can't win, and it, this is more symptomatic from my perspective than anything, right? Like, it's not like the blind bid is actually going to materially change the market. And I originally used to think it did, and I was probably one of the people who bashed that system more than anybody. But I, I don't. I think that the the blind bid itself is a symptom of a very broken market that is over liquid, that it has way too much credit in it, that is undersupplied. I mean, it's just and so treating the symptoms from my perspective isn't going to solve the housing crisis. It might help a little bit, but I don't. I think it's probably the least meaningful of all of the policies uh, outlined. Um, I'll say something. I'm just gonna yeah. say something. We should do what builders are doing for precon. They're listing high. <laughs> they're just like right. first come first serve that's right. it yeah if i mean i always try and market price. yeah but they're also hedging against inflation i mean here's the thing like yeah. i feel like um it's robbing you of a of a like economic like a capitalist market i mean like come on now i mean i just feel like we're in, we're entering this whole like fascist state like you better take your vaccine shot or else type of thing let's not discuss okay but you know like, talk about this it's, it's, yeah we don't we don't do politics here Yes. Except in, unless it's actual policy and housing. Ben, help me. So anyway, so the bottom line is, is that I just think it's utter nonsense to, you know, to to halt the blind bidding thing because really you're just robbing people of the essence of real estate, and then you know, like it's just it's one thing after another. Like, couldn't it be argued on, though? Tax on a residential on a residential home, like probate fees. Yeah, like, what else like, is next? I don't Do you know like what I'm saying? That stuff. Yeah, couldn't yeah. it be couldn't it be argued in the opposite direction though like couldn't it be argued that you're creating greater transparency in the market and that 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 allows prices to 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 be more price or price growth to be more organic um because people are aware of what the market's willing to pay right like you always know that you're paying market value if if the price is available to everyone and that that's to me the biggest challenge with an open bid is why not pay one dollar more if there's another bid that's one dollar less exactly. than you, then you know you're not overpaying, right? So exactly. technically, prices could just rise infinitely. Correct. Yep. Agreed. I, know, but um, I don't. I don't want. Well, I guess I don't know. I, I guess I just don't want the person. Like, if I'm selling my own home, it's none of your business. Like, what you know, investor or whatever. Like, what person buyer one decided to give me for it. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. That's just my view. And that's because we've been spoiled. That's why. But it will, but be, it will be their business when it's sold. So like it doesn't 
like does it does it matter that much? Like, because they're they're gonna know when your house is sold. <laughs> yes, unless because you wanna... it, it deters them from coming in at a at a much stronger, you know, bid or whatever price point. You know what I mean? Like, if if you're gonna <laughs> offer me fifty thousand dollars more, but you just you just realize that Buddy B here just gave me like you know twenty thousand less. Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. And I guess this speaks to people who have, you know. I'm not insulting anyone, by the way, because I don't want to get, you know, barraged with like, oh, my God, you didn't say this. But if you have investment property that is, you know, with significant equity or your principal home is paid off. Yeah, it's going to make a difference for you because it's like, well, like, I don't, you know, I want top dollar for my house. Sorry, but don't you know, Susan, people have no sympathy for for people who've owned their house for like 30 years and have like a million in equity. No one has sympathy for that. Like, I get what you're saying, and I, I, I understand. I think they, they shouldn't be, but, yeah, I don't... Yeah, there's an entire generation of TikTokers who are ready yeah. to... Uh, <laughs> I know, but that's because people don't realize that people invested so much time and energy in building their, their wealth, you know what I mean? Uh, it just... Um, and I can't speak for everyone, because some people are shady. They got but... lucky. They got lucky. They weren't really no, it's not a lucky. wealth. It's they not just, a okay, they bought 50 years ago. It, they weren't building. They just got super lucky. They were born in whatever year, so... Yeah, but um, at the time, at the time, things were different too. I mean, like back. I mean, back in my dad's day, like interest rates were high. They were astronomical. So, and, and my dad said in relation to him buying his home, like you know, the income level levels were not that high. So, but there was more opportunity. It's proportional, much, more much more proportional than it is now. That's yeah, true. exactly. So, I mean, like it's you can just you can make an argument about everything. hundred k back then so was quiet? a lot. <laughs> um. Yeah, so the one thing, uh, I guess, Jordan, while we we just got you on here as a speaker, but the one thing we were chatting about um, before we got started, although we did kind of just get started, and obviously we're talking about the blind bid, but Jordan, if you, do you, out of that list of, of policies, what do you think the most likely, because I know you were, you had a lot to say about um, vacant home tax, right? And, and you know, that's been more proposed at a, at a um, municipal level, but I'm interested to hear uh, what you think is the most likely policy response we're going to see to um this housing crisis um i have no idea i'm just hoping we don't land on the minimum down payment increase for investment properties um and the, and the reason like there's nothing wrong with it in theory um you know you reduce your leverage a bit you so over levered investors are less likely to be in the market um so i mean you, you like obviously there's a lot of investment there's a lot of speculation that's going on i don't think it's the main issue but putting that aside like um that takes some buyers out of the market so that's a good thing for affordability in theory but i think requiring like that'll immediately affect the pre-construction market because essentially you know when you buy a pre-construction condo you're looking at a 20 percent deposit program that's you know maybe five percent uh installment spaced out over two years type of thing uh, and the way I look at it is investors and pre-construction, like, look, they're already paying. We, we talked about it um, either last week or the week prior. They're already paying a 10 to, t- 10 to 20 or 30% premium over resale market value to buy pre-construction right now. So you're taking that bit, that bet and you're taking that risk. We'll call it like a, like an options contract on the housing market, right? So you're going, okay, I, I'm, I'm more levered than I would be on a resale because I'm spacing out my deposits. Uh, the time value of money is there, right? I'm speculating on the growth um, to make up more than make up for that 10 or 15% premium I'm paying over the next five years while the project's being completed. And I'm levered five to one while I do so. Now, if you decrease that leverage to, you know, 30, like 35% down, and now you're at what, three to one leverage, 
it makes it a less attractive option. And it also rules out a ton of buyers. Like I can tell you, um, you know, a lot of my clients, they have the, the 20 or 25%, you know, the 20% plus closing costs ready to go. But I, I'm not sure that a lot of them have the additional 10% or would, or would be willing to use pre-construction as an investment vehicle in the event they had to use that extra 10% because obviously it changes the economics of, of or it changes the, the amount of leverage you have in the market. Um, I, can, I can lend them the money at 25%. We'll, talk. <laughs> well that's great. But but I think, but I think what the issue, so the issue, the long-term issue, like short-sighted, that looks good because, okay, cool. Less investors in the pre-construction market, less investors in the resale market gives more room for first-time home buyers, right? Less, less competition. But I think also if you look medium long-term, okay, well, who finances the projects? Well, we talked about this, the, the, the investors, investors buy 60 to 80% of your average pre-construction project. That 20% is then used for the developer to lever up their construction financing to break ground. So if let's say you, you wipe out 30 or 40% of people who would have been willing to invest in pre-construction at 20% down, but are no longer interested at 35. Well, now less projects get launched, less projects get financed, less projects come to market. So therefore you fast forward five or 10 years, you're actually seeing less new housing supply on the market, which is a supply constraint that further, you know, further creates issues for, for um, affordability. I, I don't know which policy is the most likely, um, but I have I have my problems with <laughs> I have problems with all of them. Um, obviously, like we spoke about the vacant home tax before, I think it's ridiculous. I think they're probably going to spend more money um, chasing it down than actual collected revenue. But that's a whole other story. Um, but I, I think, think most I, I think most of these policies, like to me, are are an enforcement challenge, right? Like even the exactly. the investor one. That you know that you were just speaking about, and when we get to that one, I do want to chat about it because I think that you know there's something to be said for, especially uh, pre-construction condo investors who, you know, in a lot of cases at 20% uh, down payment, so 80% loan to value, they're cash negative, and that's that's socializing the cost of, of affordable housing through a capitalist economy. But also, the only reason that they can do that is because those things go up in value. So again, to me, that's a symptom. Um, I'm going to go now from the top of the list, uh, and then we'll kind of just we'll briefly touch on um, the blind bid because we did kind of get uh, relatively exhaustive with it um, during the intro there. Um, but so we'll start off with number one here from the list. Um, and I don't know, Vijesh, are you able to share the tweet um, that just in case anybody wants to follow along in this list? Um, I'll try as well, but but uh, I'm just not good at multitasking, honestly. Um, but so number one is an anti-flipping tax on residential. Uh, properties requiring properties to be held at, at least 12 months um what the tax implications would look like for this um whether or not it's it's an outright ban um so are we basically making it so people cannot you have to hold you buy something you're stuck in it it's a liquid for a year you got a one-year lockout like a hedge fund um or is it you know is it similar to or basically just an extension of like what you know where people are already kind of abusing the primary residence thing where they're like oh yeah i lived there for a month or for, sorry, for a year, and so I don't have to pay tax on it. Anyway, uh, I'll let you guys discuss there. Um, Peter, maybe if you want to start, just because you're already unmuted. Yeah, um, I, I don't really have too much to say to that because it's more of an extension of what's going on now. Um, and I think um, going back to the liberal platform on it, all of these are going to have loopholes. So it's going to be based on like extenuating circumstances that – you know, if you sell, if you buy and sell the same property within the same year, they're going to charge uh, uh, an additional surtax on you. 
but you just say, Hey, I'm moving for work or I had a kid or, you know, and we need more space for, for some, you know, some sort of extenuating circumstances, life changing event, then, you know, there's going to be loopholes to get out of it. Right. For sure. Yeah. And I think like most of these, like that's really the biggest part of the discussion is everyone's like, you guys can't even crack down on the bad actors that are already in the market and you're creating more places for, to create potential competitive advantages for ba- for people who are willing to be bad actors or able to be bad actors uh, to exploit. So I do think that's interesting. Um, Nazma, Jordan, or, or Susan, do you guys want to add anything there about uh, whether or not it's even possible to ban flipping houses? I think it's going to be very complicated and, you know, where do you draw the line? I think it's kind of similar to a pre-con where you, you know, you kind of uh, tell them if you're an investor or an end user and then uh, you get uh, the HST charged or not. Right. Um, But that's simple because even if you're an investor, I mean, you get some of the HST, most of it back when you kind of lease it out for one year. So, but anyway... Um, and also, I mean, it's the same thing as well. Like, let's say you bought a house and you sold it for under, let's say, a year and a half. CRA might, you know, take a look and be like, hey, what is this? Is this income? Is this? And if you're a realtor or you're a builder or you're in that industry, they're probably going to say that's bullshit. And this is, you know, you're profiting off this. Um, and if it's your first time you've done it and you're none of you're not in the industry, they'll give you a free pass. But then if you do it again, they won't. So, I mean, yeah, it's just... It just, I just think it's going to be so complicated and you're really at the mercy of whoever's subjective, uh, you know, point of view of your situation is and they get to play God and decide if, you know, you, ha- you have the right to get taxed or not on it. So I don't know. I just don't, don't right. like it. I think I want to add here that um, the problem that we have in our city, too, is that we don't really like review other people's models outside of our country. Like we don't like we look at we don't look at crises crisis i don't even know how to say that word but like you know things that are obviously not happening functioning well in parts of like china like the developer crisis going on there and like we don't really study you know those type of models and what's not working and how it may manifest over here so what what can we do to deter these kind of things like we just kind of throw out policies oh let's do this let's do that let's do a tax here let's you know what i mean so um i think that that becomes a problem like i think we need to steady disparities like in different parts of you know different countries so that we understand like what just didn't work there and how we can how we can better it here right i don't know i think there's an interesting note that that is often overlooked when people are talking about um about flipping right that flipping it to me again it's symptomatic right so when you look at a flip it'll, it it basically allows a purchaser to buy a house that has renovations that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford cash right so you're you know your first time home buyer you're going to buy maybe an old wartime bungalow and you you know it, it's not in the condition that you would want it to be in but there's no way you're going to shell out the 100 or 150 grand that it's going to cost you to make it the way that you want it now a, a, a contractor came along and bought that property prior to you and put in that money and made it the way that you wanted it uh, now, all of a sudden, you do have a property and you have that opportunity. But the reason that you have that opportunity is because because now you can buy it with leverage, right? So it allows you to apply that 80% loan to value to renovations that you would have otherwise had to pay for cash. So to me, I still think that that's symptomatic of a credit issue. And I think that that's one of the things that's overlooked. And Stephen Pomwasi and I had a pretty serious conversation about this in, in a thread where 
you know, you know, he felt that that flippers were taking something away from the market, and I felt that they were adding value to the market, but the market itself was broken, right? And this that this was actually a symptom of that. Um, so anyway, I don't know if anybody has anything to add on flipping, but I do wait. I, I do. I do agree that you know it would give me a lot of pleasure in seeing those uh, flippers. You know, the ones that. You know, they buy a house and then six months later, they don't do anything to it and they sell it with like 500K profit. For sure. I would I would love to have kind of, uh, you know, kind of these guys get taxed and get yeah. some pleasure out of it. I would love that. Uh, yeah, but again, sure. how are you going to implement it? Because, you know, there are some people that do have these situations where, you know, maybe somebody died or whatever it is. I know, you you know, you, you a lot of situations you can kind of prove, but but I agree with you that it is a symptom of something else, which is credit and it, free money. Yeah. Um, Vijesh, you got your hand up there? Yeah, I just wanted to step in and finally my speaker's working, actually, because I had a point about both of them, about flipping as well as uh, the blind bidding that we were talking about earlier. I, I'm going to come at this from the stock market perspective, just to compare this to stocks for a second. Uh, we do start seeing flipping and day trading a lot more when the market's really hyped up. Like it's a signal that the market's getting really hyped up and that's what you're seeing in the real estate market as well. I don't think cutting down on it is really going to... It, it's uh, a government intervention that I don't think is going to work. Like if people do want to flip, if they want to do it, the, the solution to that is higher prices and just the market running out of steam eventually. In terms of blind bidding, that doesn't happen with stocks. Like if you see stocks, you can clearly see who's put a bid for how much. You can see the whole market on both sides, what prices they want, what prices they're willing to take. That is way more efficient. That allows both buyers and sellers to get the right price that they want. So that I think adds efficiency and that would really be helpful and it doesn't lead to a lot of downsides in stocks so i can't see how that would lead to a lot of downsides for real estate but i can see john pasalis is here so i'm going to shut up and go back into it <laughs> i love it yeah john welcome um so just to start off uh john if you have a minute um what do you think we had all of the realtors here so far answer this question but i'm curious to see your thoughts what do you think the most likely policy response we're going to see over the next little bit to the housing crisis, um, if any? Uh, I, I think probably tightening a credit on investors, so probably higher down payment requirements. Um, yeah. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if they increase the, the, the peak on the CMHC insurance limit to one and a quarter. I mean, even though that's going to fuel the housing that's market, what I, felt too. I think it's like I, my instinct is <clears throat> if they do it, they're just going to say we're tightening it on investors and we're you know, making it easier for home buyers. So I think it's very possible. The optics. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an election, an election optic, uh, program for them. I really think like it, that sounds pretty on brand. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, and I guess on the, on that topic, cause we were talking a little bit about it, um, the down payment requirements, how would you like at what is, is it going to be an honor system just like we are doing taxes right now where people basically just tell the CRA whether or not they're they're being a bad boy like or like uh, how do you possibly uh, enforce that at scale which part like the, are you talking about the the, minim, the investor side the minimum no, down the, payment or the source of funds the, yeah the source of funds or the investor like how do you determine whether or not something is an investment property and that it's subject to a 30 yeah. or 35 yeah, I mean, like an increased down payment yeah, I mean, that's a that's a tricky one, obviously, because I know a lot of people who just say they're buying a principal residence for their kid or whatever and just never right. move into it. And the, I mean, the reality is there's no real enforcement in, in uh, you know, as far as I know, I mean, I, I think I've seen Ron Butler mention this, that 
there's no enforcement. Nobody really cares. Like as long as people pay their mortgage, no lender is going to go in and chase to see if the place got rented, right? Um, yeah, it's like the oldest trick in the book that people buy to claim it's a primary residence <laughs> so they can lever up to ninety five percent and then not move in. Like and they all and they also it, give them the advantage where they're like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna evict you on an, R, an N thirteen anyway because I'm gonna I'm claiming to move in. Like and then you know they're exploiting every loophole there is. Yeah, I mean the thing is though, whoever's qualifying for the mortgage, I mean, has to be able to qualify on their own. So you can't like just buy a house in your kid's name, obviously, because you know they still have to have the income to qualify for it. So. They're still going to have to have whatever that increased down payment is. And then, you know, the other thing that people have been talking about, like people in the mortgage space have more uh, insight to this than I do, that potentially even, you know, the regulators ensuring that the source of funds are not leveraged as well, like the down payments, right? So money not coming from HELOCs and stuff like that. So that'll cool demand a lot, I think, for, for from investors for sure. Right. Yeah, I would agree. I think um, it's tough to know whether or not it's going to be meaningful enough, especially if they couple it with uh, an increase in the buy. Because, like, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about is, that, like, sure you can you can pull investors out of the market, but investors are probably the more rational consumer than first time home buyers. No offense, to all first time <laughs> home buyers listening, but like, you know, the rea- the reality is, if you're increasing the the, the price floor of you know, you have first-time buyers who they're going out with their their friend who's doing their first deal, right? And they're throwing hail mary offers and stuff because they they they're like they're the ones who, in more cases, have FOMO. They're the ones who, in more cases, have an inexperienced agent. To me, I don't know if that that really is going to bode well for for fixing a housing crisis. If anything, it might exacerbate it, right? The combination of policy that you're talking about pulling the investors out, uh, pulling the investors down, but but increasing the buying power. Oh of, yeah, of yeah. Your, your taxpayer insured buyer. Right? Yeah, it could be a bit of a mess. <laughs> Especially if like they're the ones in an equity, like you, if you're buying a CMHC insured mortgage, uh, you know, if you're buying at the, the highest leverage you can get at, at a million bucks, which is, I don't know, let's just say it's even 10%, but I think it's somewhere like it's like seven or 8%, right? Yeah. Um, it, you're, you're, you're entering your house with like a, a three or 4% equity position, yeah. right? So you're exposed. And, and, and if you consider costs of like your exit costs, the risk there is, is enormous for, for those people. So I don't know. That alarming to me i no, i agree with you i mean listen i think the thing when when the when the bank of canada talks about investors booming i mean that's usually like a leading indicator of like irrational exuberance right but the fact is i mean we all know like 80 percent of buyers or whatever are, are 75 are end users and they're really the ones that are probably the most exuberant now i mean some of the prices you know we're seeing in the burbs is just like mind-blowing man and yeah those are i agree with you those are all fomo end users it's not you know, an investor spending, you know, 1.8 million for a house in Stouffville right. that would have sold for 1.2 last year. Right. Yeah. So they can rent it out at 50. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not great. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, let's move on. Maybe we'll go to uh, the temporary ban on foreign buyers. Uh, if any, I don't know if anybody wants to start off on that one, maybe. Um, but I, I think that, that was an interesting one just to even hear from the liberal platform. Peter, I noticed you unmuted. Do you want to you want to chime in there? Yeah. Um, you know, being in, in Markham, I can see, you know, what the, the effect of the uh, foreign buyer had in 16 and 17. Um, and a couple stories I, I told, you know, uh, in a space last night of, of, you know, guy from Hong Kong comes in or from China comes in and his agent tells me he's here for two weeks. And he's got 10 million bucks to basically blow on real estate. Right. Um, but I think, I think the issue is not just banning the foreign buyer, it's banning the capital that's coming um, from overseas, right? So, you know, in a hypothetical, we have a, 
student, let's just say, comes here or uh, gets PR status, but, you know, no source of income. And, you know, parents overseas are essentially sending him a million dollars in cash to go buy something. So, like, technically, that's not a foreign buyer because he's a permanent resident. But, again, funds are the issue. And that's where I see the problem. Yeah, and I think like, the money laundering too. Yeah, I mean, it is a good point, right? Like, I don't know how much. Like, I've, I've certainly seen deals where I'm like, "There's no way this deal makes any sense unless there's unless there's an ulterior motive," which you know, to me, would be either you know losing money on paper, money laundering, laundering, etc. Um, I guess the challenge becomes not even uh, not even to think about it in a in a in a malicious way of money laundering. No, for sure. Even if we just say it's legitimate funds, like. Um, one of the mortgage agents on here posted something. I think it was Rob, uh, not Ron, but Rob Campbell, I think it was. And he's yeah. like, permanent resident, income of 49000 bucks, buys a house for $1.5 million or whatever it is, gift $1 million bucks. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, obviously that source of funds is not local. So, like, yeah. that's skewing our market. It's distorting pricing, too, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think one of the challenges there is 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 enforcement again, right? It's like, how, like when the non-resident speculation tax happened, it was immediately circumvented, like immediately, right? And like there are still people who are obedient to that system, but if, if people are going to find like where there's a will, there's a way, right? So I don't know how you figure out whether or not the like how and how you put a hundred percent reduction on, on foreign ownership. I, like I, to me, that one's a nothing burger. Just because I don't have faith in the current administration's ability to execute it, I think it would be a very meaningful policy to put into place, as we saw with the non-resident speculation tax that shaved 15, 20, 30 percent off the market almost overnight, right? And then created you know like a thirty plus percent peak to trough until well August of the next year, like it's 12, 18 months that it ran down, um, and I. I but and then obviously you know the rates brought things back up. But I don't I don't know how they could possibly execute it. But I, I do think it would really meaningfully negatively impact price if it did. Anybody else want to add on that one? Yeah, I mean I think it is impossible to to regulate that. I mean I, and I agree with Peter. I mean a lot of it's the capital, but you can't really police it. I mean the fact in in 2017 the drop was more uh, I think not so much because of. A curb on you know foreign capital or foreign investors i really think 2017 was just behavioral like <clears throat> people saw what happened in vancouver and when they introduced it in vancouver where there actually are way more foreign investors prices fell so you know when the province of ontario said we're going to do that everyone's freaking panicked and buyers said okay wait i'm going to see what this is going to do to the housing market seller yeah. said let's just list i don't want i know the market's crazy now and then just turned on a dime overnight, not because there's so many foreign buyers, but because people just freaked out and panicked, right? It was, and, a narrative, economic, yeah. it was just the narrative economics, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. I think consumer psychology was just shaken by that. And, and, and that was like one of those bull runs, which to me feels very similar to today, where people are like, the Canadian government will do anything they can to keep house prices propped up. And, the, and then as soon as you shook that, then it, it started eroding, right? It's the toilet paper syndrome. Right. Yeah. Scarcity. Um, The other, I I don't know if any of you have insight on what happens sort of with the the lending for new Canadians or because one of the big sources that I think about um, foreign direct investment is, you know, people coming here, it's the migration buy, right? And and that's extremely common and, and 
drives a lot of the market, right? Um, and I do think there are cha- there's differences in the lending policy, and I wish we had somebody from the lending space that could chime in to uh, I, Josh, I do think you know a lot about this. We want to go ahead on it. So I'm not a mortgage lender, but I did. I'm on the other side. I'm a PR holder. I just came to the country in 2019. And I think the first conversation I had was uh, with RBC. So I just went to the biggest bank and just asked them what the policy was just because I didn't know how it worked in this country. And I think what they said to me was it works differently for us simply because we're new to the country, but they want to encourage us to buy. So the rules were... 35% down payment, uh, the income won't be taken that seriously. Like they won't, you know, it doesn't matter that much as long as you can put a 35% down payment and show one year worth of uh, mortgage payments. So as long as you can show 12 months worth of mortgage payments and I think condo fees, if you're buying a condo, then you, it's easier for you to get approved. And then there was certain other limits like 4.5x your income or something like that. But in general, he just said, as long as you have the down payment, you're good to go. So I'm not sure if that's changed since 2019, but that's what RBC told me. Okay, interesting. Uh, to hear, go ahead if you want. Yeah, has anybody actually looked at how much uh, anti-money laundering fees Canadian banks pay as a percentage of GDP? It's massive. It's absolute. Like, if you compare Canada to the United States, um, like in 2020, U.S. banks paid about $32 billion dollars. In, in like like fees uh, in anti-money laundering fines, thirty-two billion dollars in an economy that's worth twenty-two trillions, like like you know 0.4 percent. Canadian banks paid almost five percent of GDP. Um, they paid, I, I think it was roughly like eight um, or so odd billion dollars, and in, in terms of actually like paying out um, paying out um, the uh, fines for for AML. Um, but I was I was talking with a guy from City uh, City uh, who works in anti money laundering actually like two days ago, and um, when he was asking me about like you know where I worked and I told him that I worked in capital markets in, in Canada before moving back stateside, um, he was like the 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 policies for banks there are so absolutely ridiculous in terms of like how much of a blind eye they turn to uh, to anti money laundering. He's like nothing's nothing's going to stop money from flowing overseas and so i i think until banks change their regulations about how they deal with money laundering um this money's not going to start uh stop flowing to to um let's say into the housing market yeah yeah i think that it's it's an interesting point um and it's one of the ones where you know i mean obviously they're not going to have any data on it that's that's by design, right? Like, and then it's one, I, I, I've always found it such an interesting conversation because, you know, it's, it's something that we're not supposed to talk about it and, and we're not able to, cause it, you're never told the full story. Right. So I would agree. It's just, it's where, like, I, I know there's people who are in touch with the underbelly of the, you know, the Canadian real estate market and who, who see a lot of that stuff, but it's just, it's hard to, for me to really grasp the magnitude of, of what you're talking about. Um, but interesting anyway. Um, anybody else want to add on, on that, concept of the, whether or not we'll see a ban in foreign purchase um jordan i don't know if you have any insight on on how much of this is happening like I, i'd say a lot of the the vip you know your vvip kind of pre-con individuals i think you're seeing a lot of foreign direct investment in that space and you know would it qualify like would would, would pre-con uh would would sorry would volume rush into pre-con because that would still qualify because it's not you know the, the resale housing that can be consumed immediately by uh you know your your marginal buyer um what are your thoughts there jordan it's tough to say like i um 
we're obviously one of the biggest pre-construction sites in Canada. So we get a lot of, I look at our traffic often and, and notice a lot of traffic from Hong Kong. And we look at, I look at the deals we do and, and look at how many are foreign. The truth is like out of the couple, we sell two, 200 plus units a year and um, two or three a year are foreign buyers. Um, now by nature, like we're not a Mandarin Cantonese speaking team. So it's, it's tough to say how much there really is, but I talk to developers about it a lot. And, you know, like there's a site, there's a site I did a, a ton of units at um, that uh, is, it's an 800 unit site. And of the 800 units, there were less than five foreign buyers. But I know that it, it's super location dependent, right? So you get something um, in the downtown core that's a little bit more popular or advertised overseas a little bit more. It's going to it's going to have more foreign buyers. So it's really difficult to say how much of the pre-construction space is saturated with with like foreign buyers all i can say is that we don't do a ton of it and at the sites that i'm close enough with the developer to developers to get a straight answer on um it's not a it's not more than five five ten ten percent at most i've heard um and i know that um like our our inquiries from from overseas have gone down considerably since since nrsc um, and most of the people who reach out to me from Hong Kong or with Hong Kong numbers, for example, they have their PR, right? Whether they're a student or whatever the case is, the money may be foreign, but they're, they're not, they're here. Um, so th- that doesn't, that's, that doesn't get counted, obviously, you know, that doesn't, you don't apply an RST. Like if you have PR, you're good to go. So that doesn't, um, that doesn't count. And there's really, I don't think there's a way to police capital coming from overseas, nor would you want to if the person is is in the process of getting their citizenship, right? Um, so it's tough. It's tough for me to say because I'm just I'm not a team that I don't. My team doesn't do a ton of foreign deals, so I don't know how prevalent it it, it really is. So I, I, like that's that's the best I got. Can I just add to that? Sorry. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say that, like I, from experience in the past, I know that a lot of developers would um, make a point of traveling outward, so they would go to to exhibitions or expos like in Dubai and Hong Kong and Shanghai, Shenzhen, whatever, and they would market to these people. So it's kind of, um, so, I mean, unless you're really like a Dan Wong, cause I know he would, I know he actually has, um, like a brokerage company out in Hong Kong. It's really hard to decipher between like who is a foreign investor, who's actually bringing money in from outside of the country because like yeah. developers are actually going out to source these people. Do you know what that's I mean? A, yeah. That's actually an interesting point too, because uh, one of my colleagues, Yvonne and, and uh, my broker of record Lang um, and Mark Morris, who's a, a, a real estate lawyer here. Um, they went to the Shanghai property expo, which I believe is like the biggest property expo in the world. Um, two, two or three years in a row, a uh, number of years back. I think the last time they went was three years ago, but anyways, they went two or three years in a row set up a booth and tried to sell pre-construction over in Shanghai. They didn't do a single deal. Uh, That's why they stopped going. Their first year, they were the only one from Toronto there. Uh, The second year, I believe Great Golf was there and one other brokerage. Um, But I don't think, like, I I know I see a ton of um, internet ads targeting those areas, uh, like Hong Kong and China and and stuff for for pre-construction. But it's not like you, you walk around these, you know, two, three thousand booth property expos in Shanghai and just see Toronto shilling pre-construction. There's very few of them over there. Right. Makes sense. Um, 
before we move on to Vishash and to your point, um, do you, does anybody know if that, that stat, like, you know, Jordan, you mentioned like something like 5% in some of these buildings. Do, do we have a figure on like what would actually be, um, the composition of, 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 um, actual foreign investment, not PR, whatever it is, um, what that represents as percentage of the real estate purchasers? Like, cause I think it would be interesting to examine the magnitude or to give us an understanding of the magnitude of what a band would look like. Um, Vijash, if you want to go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in on what Jordan said, and it was helpful to get data from his website to see how many foreign buyers are actually looking at properties from abroad, because that's kind of helpful to see that they're not the majority away. I wanted to add another point to dear point as well. But money laundering, capital coming from abroad and people hiding it in shell corporations happens in a lot of other places. And one of the main destinations for the same kind of money is London where these Russian oligarchs used to put capital in and those obviously Chinese and Indian buyers because we're everywhere and there's a lot of money flowing out of those two countries. But then again, London's housing market is still healthier than ours. So the fact that there's a mania going on over here, not in London or any other place that's a destination for this hot money laundering man cash is a signal that it's mainly domestic driven. That's just my opinion. And I guess it becomes a question of whether or not it is more difficult to launder money in some of these economies, which I don't really understand, you know, because I don't do that for a living. Um, Tahir, do you want to go ahead and then we'll move on to Nazma and uh, Daryl? I I think it's interesting because I I had a very long conversation with Abe um, yesterday and Abe's like a a good friend of mine, like I know him personally. And um, like, you know, I on the money laundering side, it doesn't seem that he'd stopped. Um, Peter, I think, was there yesterday. He, he was saying that he was talking with one of the head economists of a bank, and I, I don't want to say which one, but um, that uh, that economist uh, knew some shake who just came to Durano and bought, what did he say, Peter, like 60 units? Um, and, and he just came out of 50 condos. Yeah, he bought 50. Yeah. Yeah, and this was like in the matter of a couple of days ago. Um, so I don't think that that's slowing down. On, on the policy front, kind of uh, maybe we'll get to it later, um, was what I wanted to talk about is maybe has anybody thought about the like abolishing rent controls in Ontario and how that has effect on not just like like rental markets, but I mean, there's there's a lot more like kind of like economic impacts from the rent control policies in Ontario. I I don't know about other provinces because I never lived in other provinces when I was up there. But I mean, that is just and like if if you want to look at the housing market within Toronto or in in Canada in general, I mean, everything that I I have seen from like a policy standpoint is just bad policy on the on the part of the Canadian government, whether that's green belts or zoning laws or, you know, um, rent controls. Um, and that's why you don't see these issues. Again, I live in the Southeast. I know everybody saw that, um, house that's $1.5 million on Lake Murray. That house is like 15 minutes from me. Um, I know that that made the rounds in, uh, in, on, on Canadian real estate. Uh, but like, again, South Carolina doesn't have zoning laws and we don't have urban growth boundaries or green belts and, um, we don't have rent controls and, you know, uh, yeah. our house price are only up three percent on the year, so I, I, I didn't know if maybe you guys have talked about rent control policy and that's a problem. No, we we didn't actually, but I'd be interested to to get some perspective on it, especially you know now that we have Steve here because I think NDP probably is the only one with more uh, constriction on on rent uh, increase than, than Ontario. Um, Nazma, did you still want to chime in there and then uh, and then Daryl? 
You're such a great host, Daniel. You always know who raised their hand. I got a pen and paper here. You're such a nice guy. Okay, so yeah. No, I just wanted to say, just from on the ground, um, this whole foreign thing, we sell a lot of houses, condos. Um, In the past year, I don't even think any buyer of all the multiple offers we've had has been an actual foreign buyer. They might be, just like Jordan said, they might be foreign in the sense that, you know, they, they just came here or... Or they live abroad or whatever it is, but they have PR, they have citizenship, something. They're not, it's very rare to that it's a foreign buyer that's going to pay 15% tax. However, now I do have a buyer who is a foreign buyer and he's okay with paying 15% tax, but he's also going to settle here and stay here. It's not like he's putting his money, you know, budget's like 700K. It's not like some wealthy foreign buyer. So again, this idea that foreign buyers are coming in here and like pouring all that they might have their money overseas yes and and they might be wealthy and you know they might not live here but they're not really they we don't see as many foreign buyers just but i think what's i think what's deceptive is that um they like people could have citizenship here like students and stuff like that or even like family members but family members back home are actual residents of that country and they are you know more than well off for lack of a better term and so they like they funneled the money through yeah and that's, like i've seen that you know what that's I'm the com- yeah i think that was sort of like where things were going at the beginning of the conversation it's like you know there's really no way to figure out what the source of capital is and, and how that all uh is impacting the market right because we, you know and a lot of that comes down to canada not having a proper ben- beneficial ownership registry etc cetera, etc cetera. but i'm actually like I, I made a tweet a while ago that said something like I, I would feel like the foreign governments actually might have more interest in knowing who these owners are than our domestic government you know i mean it's a good thing for for canada at least based on what the current administration seems to be doing because they it seems to, to feel like they like house prices going up but i feel like a lot of the countries when you know when i hear when i'm speaking with aid, agents who represent foreign purchasers especially in 1617 the conversation in a lot of cases was that they wanted to get their money out right in quotation marks and that that to me is just an interesting thing to hear i'm not super in touch with it but i just thought that was kind of an interesting thing um daryl did you still want to chime in before uh, we move on there uh sure hey. um i was just kind of thinking like Look at this list of issues to tackle we have in the market, right? And and this is just the list of items that they've kind of written down on, on this list right now. So no matter what they do decide to tackle, if they do decide to tackle any of these things and actually put in policy, like there's, there's a lot that won't be dealt with and there's more that will come up. And like we're a very creative bunch, us real estate folks. So... Well, it's it's really a game of whack-a-mole, and if they if they close one thing, we're going to find a way to to do it some other way because there's a lot of money to be made in this market, right? And so it doesn't matter where the money's coming from; it's it, it keeps coming. So so if you go back before foreign buyers were even an issue here, you had like the developers would sit down at at Centro's on a Thursday night and they would all decide, you know, I'll buy 20 of yours and I'll buy 20 in yours and we'll all buy each other's first before, you know, so we can get our construction financing. And then slowly we'll, you know, assign them out through the the, the process once we've we've got things going. Like there's always a way that people are going to find to get their money into the market when it's making money. So it's all just smoke and mirrors and smoke screens to keep us all talking while, 
you know, all this craziness that's kind of going around and going on around us. But they're not going to fix anything. Like, look what's come out lately. We got uh, garden suites. That's good. It's some progress, I suppose. Uh, and actually, that's an interesting little segue here. You know, as a, just while, while we have everybody, um, John um, and I are going to do a supply side conversation next week. John, I'm not sure if you want to just chat a little bit about how that's going to go, and then we'll move back into the policy side of things. Um, but, but yeah, just uh, wanted to give everybody a heads up that that's going to be the conversation for next week. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how it's going to go. We'll see. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I kind of reached out to Daniel. I mean, uh, myself and, and Tim Hudak had a online de- debate in Post City about whether, uh, I think the question was whether supply is the only solution to high house prices in Ontario or something along those lines. And uh, he argued in favor, I argued against. So I thought it'd be interesting to chat a little bit and and for me it's you know i don't don't want to have an online debate i'm more interested in kind of hearing from other people's views because obviously supply and and these issues are important so i think it'd be kind of interesting to hear what everyone else thinks about uh, about some of these issues yeah for sure um and and you know it's it's it'll be a nice segue from the conversation today which you know it seems to examine more of the the demand side policies from my perspective that we've discussed. Um, and then, you know, you hear a lot, especially in the planning community on Twitter, which, you know, much respect to them, but you know, th- there's so many people that are super EMB or whatever it is, but I think that, you know, we've always talked about examining what, if, even if we get past the bottleneck of let's say municipal planning, do we have a labor market in Ontario or a, or a construction market in Ontario that's, that can build quickly enough to solve the problem? And I don't, I don't know if there's, I mean, I, I just think we've reached a point where there really is no silver bullet for housing here. I don't think any of these policies that we've discussed are, are going to be it either. So I think that both the supply and demand side are broken and, and you need a comprehensive solution if, if you're ever going to get there. Um, I'm, with, I'm, I'm with you, man. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a bit. I, I, I do. I do think it's a bit of both. I think the supply is a lot harder than. Everyone makes it sound, but again, I think it'll be interesting to hear from people next week because you're right. There are kind of obviously a lot of strong views, especially from people in the planning space. Yeah. So it'd be sure. interesting to hear um, them. I think uh, I actually think we've covered everything pretty well. Um, we did have one. I, I had a uh, somebody who was trying to chime in, but they said they had too much background noise. They wanted to ask a question, so I will go through that. But is there anything anybody else wants to add, Steve? I noticed you've uh, you've been kind of quiet here, and I always love to hear your voice. Uh, you know your your Vancouver uh, accent is beautiful. Um, anything you want to say about what do you think the most likely policy we're going to see um, from a government um, federal? you know, provincial, whatever, to, to try and fix this housing crisis? I miss you too, man. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, probably nothing. But uh, if I was going to take a stab at it, I'll probably say I think increasing the credit restrictions on investors, potentially, you know, what, 25% down payment minimum requirement kind of thing as opposed to 20, like maybe. Uh, to me, that's probably the most logical one and easiest to implement because all, all you have to do is you just flick a switch, right? You just make a change tomorrow. So uh, that's probably the best way to kind of temporarily cool the market off. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, take here. You got your hand up there. Yeah, maybe to the, the, the supply and demand side. I know you and John will be having something on that. But from a policy standpoint, I mean, let's say if the futures market is pricing how many rate hikes the Bank of Canada is going to do correctly. Um, I mean, I, I don't think the interest rate matters as much because, you know, people will say, well, rates are still low. But that rate of change, let's say, you know, you have a, a 
you know, rates go up 150 bips, that rate of change, don't you think, would be enough to some extent to uh, to to have some sort of leftward shift in demand? How drastically that leftward shift in demand would be, I have no idea. I haven't modeled it, but um, just uh, just a thought. John, were you going to try? Yeah, to yeah. I was going to say, I, I think it's going to have a huge impact. Like, I think. You know, if, if rates go up even 100 basis points, it's not going to have a huge impact so much on what people can qualify for because of the stress test. But, you know, if you're a home buyer, you qualify for an $800,000 mortgage today, 100 basis points is going to add 400 bucks to your mortgage payment. You know, and I think the key thing that we haven't seen for a long time is, you know, raising rates that drastically and adding 400 bucks to someone's mortgage payment in an inflationary environment. It's going to be pretty interesting to see how that unfolds. So, you know, I think we just might end up seeing a lot of people pulling out of the market just because they don't want to take on that much debt and, quite frankly, can't afford the mortgage payments because everything else is going up. And especially, you know, low-rise houses now in Toronto are like 1.6 million. I mean, who on earth is, you know, going to be able to afford much more than that? So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Yeah, I'm interested to see that as well. Sorry to hear. Go ahead. Oh, just to John's point, because again, like I'm, I'm US based, but I mean, we saw that in the US and I posted a chart on that, like the, the mortgage rates have gone up and obviously we have a 30 year fix, but those have gone up 70 bips, almost 100 bips basically since uh, September. Um, and, you know, the um, mortgage applications for home prices sank almost 200 bips. Um, the overall mortgage application falling falling some 7% and refinancing falling some 12% month over month. So like even with this, uh, this drastic, uh, I mean, not even drastic, sorry, just with this tiny shift in, in the 30 year um, up almost 100 bips since September, I mean, that's a drastic like impact on, on refinancing and on just overall mortgage applications, at least so stateside. So yeah, I was just thinking if you get that 100 bit increase, especially on the variable side, um, I, I was just assuming that that would definitely have some some impact just how significant i, I just didn't know um, i think on, uh i actually i think I, I think i had done the math and uh nick um a mortgage broker that i work with uh we had sent out a, a little bit of like an explainer but it, it, it would take like something like five or six hikes assuming that they're 25 bips a piece like you need a, a point and a half to get the current variable rate to um to where a fix would be a comparable fix would be right now so and assuming i mean i guess it really depends on what you feel the trajectory of interest rates is as a buyer right if you think they're going to go up and then come back down because you know to, to simulate our way out of the recession that'll be created by them going up then you might be best to be in a variable for the next five years um but if you think they're going to go up indefinitely or stay at you know stay up uh, 200 basis points and it makes sense uh, peter you've had your hand up for a bit what's up yeah, just back to, to the whole point that John was talking about um, in, a, in a rising rate environment about not people wanting to take on that debt, but also the people that are in like there's a lot of a lot more people piling in because of that discount you talked about between fixed and variable and anybody who's already in a variable rate in a rising rate environment, you know, obviously the stress test is done at a specific point in time. So. There are people who could have levered up even more, who could have been financially irresponsible in the meantime, and now their cost of borrowing increases, and that could, you know, force them at some point potentially to sell. Um, the other point I wanted to make uh, when it came to the down payment 
on uh, investment properties, and I think John mentioned it at some point in the past, was, you know, you have a millennial, let's say, who's been in a condo for five years, uh, built up a lot of equity, and instead of just moving on up because, you know, greater household formation, they have, you know, more kids or whatever, they're... Uh, they're moving up to something larger. Well, they'll keep the condo, but you know, in in that situation where they're going to move up and instead keep the condo, well, potentially they'll have to put thirty percent down. They may not have that cash to do so and be forced to sell that uh, the original principal residence. I think that made sense. Right. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think that the. And also to John's point, like we haven't never seen a magnitude of a a hundred percent increase in prime too, right? Like the relative capital cost is so low right now that the magnitude of it is is interesting. Um, and then um, I I does anybody know like is it is it just uh, big six that the uh, offsy apply like these rules apply to like because you're still seeing some pretty wild west shit happen on like the on the on the B and C sides right and I mean those rates aren't really that expensive anyway like as a self employed individual I've been I've been buying it you know three to five percent for three years right so um, anyway I don't know if anybody can bring clarity to that and then we'll let Tahir go. I think it's just anything federally regulated. There are federal federally regulated credit unions. Right. But but not all of them. Right. Because then you also have like non-bank have financial institutions. Are they are they regulated there as well? I don't like I'm because because like I'm just wondering, does this create a, a market in which it's 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 more competitive now for for non big six lenders? Right. Um, Abe, you want to go and welcome. Yeah. Hi. Hey, guys. Um, you mentioned the credit unions. The credit unions are not um, uh, don't fall under OSPI. Um The. They're nowhere near as competitive from a vis-a-vis the um, Schedule A banks. Um, no, they won't be more competitive um, as a result of um, any uh, movement in, um, in in rates. Um, so probably get that out of, get that out of the way immediately. The other thing that I would uh, mention because I've been listening sort of patiently here, um, I think the big trigger is is the sentiment change um it isn't necessarily how much it's the sentiment change in terms of rate uh forward rates and i think that's what people are probably going to see as the as the the real catalyst and driver um that will hopefully and my hope is that hopefully um will drive a little bit more supply into this market so uh, that's my that's my view in terms of where where I think this is you know likely heading, um, and if you do get five six rate hikes in a year, that's unprecedented. I can't remember the last time we had five six rate hikes uh, in a row in uh, in the recent in recent past. So I think that's that's the whole point here is that it will change the narrative for the Bank of Canada, and it will change the narrative on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think I, I guess it seems like there are maybe differing opinions in this about the non-resident speculation tax. But I do. I for me, what I saw, and I would I'm admittedly I was pretty, pretty naive at that point, like and, and uh, didn't have a super good grasp on the market. And I'm still trying to learn as it is. But um, it seemed like that had a big impact on consumer sentiment. And, it, and it's and, you know, that led to 
further declines in prices. And John, even as you were mentioning, everybody's like, oh, this is, but it could have been opportunism still and just bad timing. I don't know. Um, there are a couple of questions that we had from the audience that people were typing in just because it's, it's tough for me to manage all the people trying to jump in as speakers. Um, any Anybody have any perspective on whether or not we could possibly see an increase in, in amortization? Um, I think CMHC is still doing 30s. Um, any, any extension on that uh, or any potential from anybody? Um, no? Well, it would help, right? Right, but I mean, it would be a just it would be a demand stimulator, right? I'm just curious as that whether or not because it was never discussed in the uh, in the policies when we were on. Talk, I guess because we're talking originally that the topic was election promises, right? And I don't know if that's gonna. I guess it would be as impactful as increasing the you know the CMHC purchasing power to 1.25 million, probably, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I've always thought about that. Hey, didn't we talk about that that one time? Uh, uh, like the. <laughs> going to japan route well they had 40-year ams at one point in canada right yeah Yeah. and the likelihood that they will do everything possible in order to save this market would not surprise me so my my forward-looking perspective on canadian real estate if things get really bad is that they will do everything and i mean everything in order to save it from itself and it's really saving uh, real estate uh, from, uh, in terms of systemic defaults for, for the banks. This is really how it works here in this country. You save the banks, and by doing so, you curb this concept of systemic risk. And how do they do it? They essentially will make it more affordable. You'll ha- it'll be fractional ownership, multi-generational fractional ownership. That's kind of where it's yeah. headed. And this kind of links to... You really have to look at, you know, zero interest rate policy and and should that continue, um, which, by the way, I can't see how the hell it can't, uh, because essentially every every central bank has painted themselves into a corner. I mean, the the, the big joke this morning was listening to um, Lagarde uh, speak, at, you know, in the ECB and she was talking about, well, you know, we've got unprecedented uh, inflation, uh, perhaps by Q4 we're going to do something about it. I mean, there's there's nothing else to talk about. Right. So, so to circle back here, uh, nothing would surprise me if you see 50, 60, 70 year end. Nothing. Could Not, you see anything happening on the policy side, like that to to for them to either a create demand or make it easier for for uh, you know the marginal nothing. buyer to buy a house? Okay. Absolutely nothing, and nothing, nothing in capital. Nothing. I have zero faith in this in this <laughs> government to do to do um, anything. Steve, you want to jump in here? Oh, yeah, I was just going to get Abe going here. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I kind of share a similar view. It's funny, I was just uh, doing an interview this afternoon for CTV News, which is always always interesting when you interview with, like, a mainstream media ch- uh, channel that doesn't have, like, a audience that understands or is really finance-focused. Um because it's you know everyone's question is always like oh what's what's driving the housing market like is it foreign money where are people getting where are people getting the money and there's like it's tough because you're like oh my god like how do I explain this in like 45 seconds that basically central banks have cornered themselves into a corner that as long as mortgage rates are you know below the rate of inflation like you're going to continue to get capital just gets absolutely pumped into the housing market um 
And so, and I don't really see how that changes because I don't think any central bank has the ability to actually normalize policy. Yeah, you might get, you know, four rate hikes, five rate hikes, okay, even like six. Like, you know, it's still going to leave your overnight rate sub 2%. And I think that's going to continue for the next decade. And so, uh, yeah, I just think like there's, there's not a whole lot of policymakers can do because the system, the financial system, I think is on life support. And so, again, so long as Canadians have nowhere else to park their capital, um, I think it's going to continue to get pumped into the housing market. So uh, to, to, to Abe's point, I think, uh, you know, the, these reporters are saying, well, where's the money coming from? What I see is people are basically calling it um, – it's a front on your inheritance. So mom and dad's yeah. house just went up a million dollars in the, over the last three years on top of what has already gone up over the last 20. And so they're just saying, okay, let's go refinance. Let's give little Johnny $200,000. And it's just, they're just viewing it as like, yeah, this is just part of his inheritance. We'll give it to him a little bit early. Here you go. Have a nice day. And Johnny goes and bids up the townhouse. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I th- th- I've always felt that the the borrowing against the inheritance is a, is a funny funny concept. Um, John, uh, to here and then Susan, do you guys want to go? And then we got a question from the audience. Uh, sure. Right. I mean, I yeah, thanks. I'll, I'll, I tend to agree with Abe. I mean, I think the federal government's going to throw everything to to keep the housing market booming. But you know, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that you know, at, at some point, like the second people's beliefs about the future path of house prices changes to, you know, to just being un- unbelievably unreasonable, um, it doesn't matter how much debt you give people, no one's going to want to take it, right? And it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, you're going to have people borrow 10 times their income. They're like, I don't care. I'm not spending you know, $1.8 million for a townhouse in Oshawa. I'm just not, right? Like, so I think, and I, and, you know, and that's the thing. It's like, we don't know when we're going to get to that point. And the government's going to, and AIDS 100% right, I think. They're going to do everything possible to throw money at it. But, you know, once people start saying, I don't want the money, then we're going to have an interesting kind of period in the market. And I think that's the important thing to keep an eye on. Like once, once beliefs change, then, you know, we have a, a rocky, rocky road ahead. Yeah, I think that this consumer sentiment and buyer fatigue are really important to watch uh, right now, for sure. Um, I think uh, to hear and then Susan. Yeah, I mean, just to Abe's point, I mean, what, Japan had a 100-year mortgage, uh, right? And and the thing is, like, the, the problem is in Canada is when 25% of your GDP is linked to um, real estate, you know, like, if, if you have any kind of downturn in that sector i mean you have a quarter of your economy that's just in the shitter right and and people want to talk about the fed and the bank of canada and i i can't drive this point home enough like the bank of canada is not the fed right get like canada is not the united states it's not like you can't compare monetary policy of the united states to the monetary policy of the federal reserve um and so you know i i think that that is a massive and even i've done a chart on that and i I posted it before if you look at the m2 the velocity of m2 in canada much lower than it is in the united states right so it's it's again canada's already more heavily indebted um from that standpoint than the united states and this is even up until recently so you know a hundred year mortgages um you know i i could see yeah on on abe's point definitely being a real thing because if anything up impacts uh, a piece of the economy that's that large um i mean you're you're basically up shit creek without a paddle right fair enough um 
Susan, did you want to jump in? And then I have uh, I have two questions from the audience. I'm going to let through. I just wanted to add that I don't think people are factoring in the fact that we haven't even discussed like property taxes, right? Like, who's to say that we're not going to have some sort of drastic property tax hike? Um, at the moment, I think Toronto is like the cheapest of many of the um, municipal taxes, but who's to say that that doesn't change, right? And and then we're up Shits Creek because of all the you know QE with, that we've seen in the last I don't know two yeah. years. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the municipal side is a whole different question, right? Because, you, you know, the municipalities really were the first ones to s- really suffer and start to, you know, borderline declare bankruptcy, especially seeing the major cities in Canada. I mean, I don't I don't think that end is, is even close with how they're going to start recuperating some of those those lost revenues or, or and I mean, that's going to become a mess. I really, I agree. Um I'm interested to see how that plays out, honestly. Um, we've got uh, a question from Harpreet and Jordan. Um, I think I'm still trying to get Harpreet here in as a speaker, but Jordan, if you want to go ahead uh, with the question you had. Okay. Hi, thanks, Daniel. Thanks for um, yeah, yeah, this a good discussion, so thank you. Um, yeah, I just have a question for the speakers and just anyone in general, um, but specifically to refinance. Um, you know, we all kind of are familiar, especially, you know, a lot of investors with the, um, you know, the past two years, especially the millennial, you know, they talk a lot about kind of the Burr strategy um, and for people to kind of grow, um, you know, the, the, the refinance is how for most people, um, <clears throat> they're able to buy more property. So I'm just wondering if for me, I think limiting that um as someone had mentioned before would slow things down um in in just the housing market in canada and whether you know the speakers think that is a good idea or if that is is bad but i definitely think you know along with rates i do think limiting refine um the capital that someone's using in order to buy another investment property. Um, I don't know. It would, they would probably have to sell it, but if they can't necessarily say refinance, I think that's something that uh, would kind of slow things down. But I'm also curious if that's a good or a bad thing. If yeah, the speakers I, wanted to chime in on that. Yeah. I just don't know how they would do it. Um, but, but I mean, I think like the, you know, the HELOCing of the Canadian, the the house ATM phenomena of Canada is, is, is a problem. I would say, I think it's probably introducing more leverage to the market than, than purchases are. Um, I just, I don't know how they would possibly execute that. Um, you know, I, anyway, I see you got your hand up. I can, I can go on on that one, but let's see what everybody else has to say first. So, so back in the late eighties, um, this is exactly what happened. And so let me just tell you, because I think most of you guys are clearly much younger and, and, and really have only experience in, in what a market looks like on the way up, not on the way down. So in the late eighties, um, you know, as my kid said, his, his language, uh, you know, the real estate market shit the bed and it was late eighties by about 1990, all the way through 1995, the way the banks operate in order to manage risk and their um, exposure to risk, they essentially just unilaterally, um, and this is very arbitrary, uh, you wake up one morning and you think you have a half a million dollar line of credit and you wake up one morning that, and it's now 350000 There's no warning. They don't call you. They don't tap you on the shoulder. They don't say, hey, excuse me, sir, uh, this is about to happen. It just happens. You start to see uh, credit card um, availability go from thirty thousand to twenty thousand, 
And essentially what's happening is it's the, it's, it's the system's natural, you know, sort of cause and effect. And um, essentially they starve the, um, their clients of capital. And over those years, between 1989, 1995, if you wanted to do a refi, and by the way, the gentleman is correct, there is no wealth creation in terms of earning more money in this country. You can't earn more money to save more money to drive the leverage per se. This is all refi, and it's systemic, and it's really quite systemic of a, actually, it's endemic of a late stage cycle um, that would be considered, you know, in any business cycle. And this one is really no exception. So that what you're seeing is very typical of what I would deem a late cycle. So, and that's just sort of like diminishing returns almost yeah. aggregated across the whole economy. I yeah. It's, it's not just real estate. It's the whole cycle. I mean, shit, if, you know, if you guys, you know, if you guys are markets people and you start to see like what's happened over the last, you know, 40 days, and I don't want to detract the conversation. I mean, just look at what's happened with the, with the NASDAQ absolute carnage okay so again late cycle kind of uh you know behavior so so what you're going to find is the banks are essentially just going to start literally reducing core availability of credit and once it starts if you have five six ten fifteen twenty thirty properties i had a friend of mine who had 47 houses in 1990 okay True story, 32 of them were gone. 32 out of the 47 were history. History. Banks don't care. People, banks don't care. They care when the cycle is moving and the credit flows are going and everything is fantastic. This is the first time in recent history where you have tightening. and. Okay, so you need to understand that there's another side of this this coin here. All right. And the other side of the coin basically says, if you don't have availability to capital, you're dead on arrival. So that's just, you know, a little bit of, you know, what happened then. And I'm not trying to scare anyone. It's just a fact. It's yeah, fact. Sure. That's what they're going to do. So so be mindful, be smart uh, and be prudent in terms of how much, you know, available cash or capital you do have, um, and, and obviously assess the level of leverage you want to continue to have, and is it sustainable leverage that you can sustain over time? Because things are changing, and I'll just you know I'll finally say this: banks are your friend on the way up. They have they don't know you on the way down, and trust me, I'm telling you, they don't know you. Yeah. Um... We had a question from the audience, and then I'll move on to Vijesh. You got your hand up. Uh, so, Harpreet, did you want to go? You'd, me- you'd message me, you had a question. Uh, yes, uh, this uh, is a question from uh, John. Uh, John, I just wanted to know about the uh, stress test that came into effect in 2016. Uh, I want to know, um, of, as of who has this benefited the most, Um has that benefited the first-time buyers like the millennials or has that benefited uh, the investors? Uh, who would you think is the biggest winner and who would you think is the biggest uh, loser in this case? Uh, I mean, I think the biggest winner are the banks, quite frankly. I mean, that the, the stress test was not really put in to, uh, to cool that. I mean, a lot of people think it was put in to cool the housing market, uh, but it was really actually primarily put in to kind of counteract 
this falling rate environment we have. And, you know, you kind of see, if you look at a lot of Bank of Canada reports, they don't want people borrowing, you know, they, they get worried if people are borrowing more than four and a half times their income, right? And the fact is, if people were borrowing at the rates that they'd be able to qualify for today at two and a half percent, they'd be able to take on way more than four and a half times their income, probably seven, seven, eight times their income. So the stress test was really mainly to limit the amount of debt people can take on. I mean, as a whole, it has, you know, the interesting thing about that is, you know, you, you think it's a, it's a measure that tightens credit, which obviously it has. But, you know, man, when, when home prices are rising 40% in a year and a half, you know, you start wondering how tight credit really is because it's, it's an irrational rate of growth. So, I mean, I'd say the, the big benefit was probably the banks, I'd say. And then certainly it, it, for a while it did take some heat out of house price growth because, you know, they did the insured change in 2016, the uninsured change a year after um, and prices were flat for like two years. So, it, it, you know, it did take some of the heat out of the housing market. Okay. Thank yeah, you. Sure. Uh, just one more question. Uh, Steve, uh, I know you talk a lot about the uh, M2 supply and how the banks, uh, how the, uh, the federal government, they have been uh, buying their own bonds and printing a lot of money. And we are seeing all that effect here in Canada uh, with inflation. And, you know, we don't have the supplies that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of supplies issues and supply chain issues and, uh, you know, and I'm just uh, wondering, uh, what are your thoughts on for the next uh, six, seven months? How do you feel the this uh, money printing and, you know, quantitative easing, as we call it, how is that going to affect the housing market uh, later on? I know the banks have been, Bank of Canada been saying that, yes, we're going to be increasing the interest rate by, uh, you know, 025 um, but uh, we've been hearing since 2004 that they're going to be raising interest rates. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's it just seems like this is uh, this is just not going to happen. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, what do you think uh, that will have uh, effects on the housing market? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's all just a function of liquidity, right? So I think that basically the Bank of Canada is just providing, providing excess liquidity. Um, I mean, obviously... You know, having your money supply growth grow by 25%, so you basically added 25% sort of all dollars in circulation in, in a span of 18 months um, was kind of the reaction to shutting down the entire economy and basically just handing out SERB checks, right? So, I mean, there's there's repercussions for that, and I think that that's just showing up uh in the housing market, because all you have to do is look at loan growth and and where so where have the banks been primarily lending their money? It's all been in residential real estate. Um, you know, loan growth, residential loan growth is running at twelve year highs. So, yeah, the basically the bulk of the money has been flowing into the housing market because ultimately it's kind of the safest place for the banks to to lend. Right? I mean, in this environment, do the banks want to lend to? businesses which are being shut down no do they want to lend to commercial real estate like office buildings no so they've got to they've got to keep credit creation growing in order to sort of keep the economy from contracting so that credit creation has been entering into the housing market uh you know long story short i think that uh i think the bank of canada is clearly pulling back on that i mean as abe talked about i mean they're not the fed they don't have you know an unlimited balance sheet here they're not the world's reserve currency so 
they're 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 going to cut hike rates here. I don't know. My guess is at least three four times this year. And then I think right now they're just in the reinvestment phase, right? So they're not actually doing QE right now. They're just reinvesting, uh, you know, bonds that are basically maturing on their balance sheet. So, I mean, long story short, net net, I think you're, you you do have a tightening of of liquidity and and financial conditions here in, in the months ahead. And uh, I think that that probably will start to slow the housing market towards the end of the year. Okay. Thank you very much, Steve. Fair enough. Um, we had a, another question that was uh, that was messaged to me, and then we'll, we'll go to Vijash, and then we'll try and wrap up. Um, so somebody said, can you ask about home capital? They're securitizing their poor credit quality mortgages at a coupon of 6%. Uh, is there possible contagion in cont- Canadian subprime? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, probably not qualified to talk about this one, but I, I can try. Um, Abe, you got anything to say on that? I'm sorry. Are we talking about home capital? Yeah, uh, no home capital, which I'm assuming is uh, is home trust. Uh, yeah, I mean that's what well, home capital is there. Uh, so they're they're a B side lender, but it says they're securitizing poor credit uh, quality mortgages at a coupon of six percent. Six percent is there possible yes. contagion in the Canadian subprime? Yes, absolutely. So I was involved in structured finance securitization back in. Uh, oh, four, or four, five, six, seven, and selling all that garbage to um, global investors uh, through you know various investment banks. Um, the reality is, yes, it does um, have an impact, and you're essentially stating. And depending, obviously, the the environment is a little, is a little different today. Um, you know, the insurers aren't necessarily wrapping AAA credit on 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 shit, um, which was occurring back when. Um, but certainly it tells you what's happened. So they're certainly, they're moving up the yield curve in order to get, um, in order to drive alpha. And that's basically what is happening here. So it, it just gets more and more risky. Again, this is endemic of a late stage real estate cycle where everyone and anyone does almost anything um, in order to drive a return. Um, and they're essentially just pooling, you know, what I would call, you know, sub 600 uh, uh, score um, uh, credit, um, which is, you know, poor credit and, uh, and securitizing, um, you know, mortgage pools and whatnot. So, so yes, absolutely. It would have an impact. Um, and you're probably going to see if, if we do get any, um, downturn, uh, which I believe is coming without question, um, you're, you'll start to see the sub, um, prime starting to crumble the same way it did, uh, in 04 and 05. And it was an absolute shit show. That's where the real contagion gets um, happens, and actually, that's when that's when the fun and games really begin. Yeah, for anybody who was in in the thread earlier about um, how to short, uh, and maybe Abe, how you're looking. I mean, I would say a lot of those B side guys are are um, because I remember you had mentioned, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, about shorting the market. Uh, A lot of those B side guys are publicly traded, right? Um, So yeah. like the equitable trust, the equitable bank, they are, but they're a better run, um, you know, organization than, than most. Right. But but right. yeah, I mean, sure. I, I, and, look. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, if I could short the Canadian real estate market, I would short it with a goddamn vengeance. Um, we're not special. Uh, we tend to believe we are. We're not special. But uh, home capital also has a massive uh, capital buffer shortfall. Um, but they also got 
uh, Warren Buffett to, to bail them out, I guess, if that he's ever happens again. <laughs> that, yeah, he's, he's long gone, guys. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Unless you want to do what I did um, and go balls to the wall and just short Canadian banks. But, I mean, you got to have some huge nuts to do that. Yeah, that's pretty bold. Um, Vijesh, did you want to jump in before we wrap up here? Uh, yeah, just a quick point on a couple of these things. So, Abe and Steve, I completely agree with you about the liquidity drying up. And actually, the latest point right now, my friends actually have investments in Equitable Bank. So, yeah, it'd be interesting. We have interesting conversations about that. But Abe made a good point about banks not being your friend on the way down. And I did see that firsthand in Greece when they, they had their old, old crisis. Within the span of a year, they went from giving you credit cards to pulling the credit to literally coming to you and saying your 600 euros from your bank account we're going to use that to pay off the country's debt so yeah completely agree with the banks will come after you when things get tight and they are getting tight right now in america just like steve said uh the fed's tightening that's going to have an impact here so i agree with that that was my question yeah i think uh, you, you see a lot of it like in uh scott uh, terrio's uh, tweets as well about how quickly the banks can turn on you when you uh when you owe the money or they perceive that um susan and then peter and then we'll try and wrap up um, sorry, I've, I've just been talking to somebody who works as a project, like a, a lead project manager at M City. I'm not going to give any names, but he actually told me that um, I'm not suggesting urban capital is, but there are de- like big time developers that are basically reaching out to purchasers and asking them for more money in order to forge ahead with projects. Like he just sent me, um, you know, yeah, we uh, saw that happening in, in low rise as well, like late last year, or sorry, mid last year, like uh, just because of inflationary well, costs, right? Yeah. And they were doing, you know, trying to pull force majeures and stuff. Um, I'd actually, I'd, I'd had one on a, on a property that I had, um, and we, we managed to get out of it, but the, uh, the majority of people did actually just pony up the dough. And I don't know what would have happened otherwise, right? Like, I don't, like you talk about that unprecedentedness of the market. Are they right to do that? I don't know. But if they're threatening that they're going to cancel the project otherwise, do you really have a choice, right? It's like cut off the head to save the body kind of thing. Peter? Yeah, back to uh, Abe's point on the, I guess, the banks not being your friend on the way down. But uh, I'm pretty sure in the liberal platform, the, the, you know, the mortgage forbearance we saw in the beginning of uh, the pandemic uh, I'm pretty sure that's on their platforms and to basically normalize that, to make that a thing that in the event of some life changing event, death, job loss, that they want to, it's part of the liberal pro- platform that they want to come in and I guess normalize it. But also I got uh, a client who's at uh, one of the big banks and I know when all this was coming down and six months later, they were giving them options to continue to make those payments on their mortgage. They were like offering um, I forgot what one, one of them was definitely extended amortizations, um, you know, adding five years to it or something along those lines. And then the, anything that they could do just so that they, these people who were basically within delinquency could continue to pay. And also Scott too, to his point, he's, he's mentioned in the past month how, um, I guess compliant or, uh, they're, the banks are sort of bending over backwards and helping with all these proposals that he's bringing forward as well. It is an interesting note, and and I think the other um, the other piece is is uh, actually I completely forgot what I was going to say there, but uh, but on on the on the forbearance side, like we were seeing a lot of that in in development capital as well, um, where there was four figures. Like the group that I that I work with and or had worked with in the finance side. 
Um, they were doing a lot of hotel financing um, prior to, to COVID, right? And um, it's it's interesting to see just how everybody scrambles um, to try and claw things together when the market, like at, at the beginning of COVID, um, you know, I, I think like there was, I had a lender who automatically um, deferred my, my mortgage, right? Like I didn't do anything, I didn't, I didn't even request it. So it's interesting to see how, uh, I don't know how, how some of that stuff happened and it was just stuff that wasn't, you'd never seen before in the Canadian real estate market. Um, anybody got anything else they want to add before we, uh, before we wrap up here? Silence. Okay. Um, that's good. That's good. That means we've been relatively exhaustive. I don't know if we ever came to a conclusion on, on what we think is actually going to happen here, but it sounds like everybody sort of thinks that CMHC is going to increase the, the price more, which is fun. Um, and, uh, and then we'll probably see, yeah, and then the investor down payments. And I, I think that, yeah, I mean, if that happens, it's going to be a, a pretty damn interesting market. Um, yeah. Can we get Abe as PM? I got so many messages about that, Abe, yesterday after the call. We need Abe as prime minister. I wouldn't do that job for totally, literally. Totally. I wouldn't um, do it for a billion dollars. I'd run. That's because you already have a billion dollars. I'll be your senior advisory. <laughs> All right, guys. Everybody have a wonderful night. Uh, yeah, just a reminder, next week we're going to be talking supply side with John. I'm going to try and get some some supply people to uh, to talk about that, and, and we'll go from there. Thank you guys all for a wonderful conversation. Recording will be available right after, and then I'll put it on the podcast next week. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dan. Okay, take care. Bye. Yeah.